And gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, and we do so in coming to worship, realizing the effect that worship has upon us. It, it isn't our worship, it is this, as if you, you took an iron and you, and you straightened out all the wrinkles of our, of our week that have rested upon our soul. We realize, Lord, that we have been caught up in so many other things, that, Lord, we need a vision of reality as it exists in eternity. And so, Lord, as we come before you, we realize that we stand in need of correction and, and of cleansing and of cleaning, and, Lord, of, uh, to be brought before you in such a way that our, our, our hearts are set aright once again. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision of yourself that would that would allow us to live a life that you had intended from the very beginning with an attitude, Lord, of praise and of thanksgiving and of gratitude, which recognizes your constant presence and the wonder of your grace. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. In some parts of Central America, you can actually find this, this, this natural phenomenon, which is really fantastic, you, you, you can find hot springs side by side together with cold springs, just next to each other. Uh, and and it is, it, it's a wonderful natural phenomenon because it allows the natives who live there to do their laundry, going from the hot cycle to the cold cycle. Uh, the hot cycle, the cold rinse all together is pretty cool. A tourist was watching this at work when he was in South America, and he turned to the local guide and he said, these people must think that Mother Nature has been pretty good to them to supply such an ample clean, uh, clean water and cold water for free. And the guide replied, well, no, actually there's a lot of grumbling because Mother Nature has not supplied soap. Now, that may sound a, a little bit familiar to every single one of us because what you hear in that is, 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 is the, the sound of a complaint, the, the spirit of a gripe. And if you listen close enough, as you go through your day, you'll probably hear it at least a thousand times, and probably from yourself as well. You'll hear it in such words as, what I have is not enough, and, what I have is not good enough, and it is not fair enough, and... I demand more. Now, now who knows what, what spawns a spirit like that? For some, it may be that life has simply become more than, than can be handled. And, and you find yourself actually buried under an avalanche of care and concern, of demands and responsibilities, so much so that the sheer weight of it all seems to squeeze the mind so that you can't even see the simplest gifts that God really has given and are already in your hand. That they, that they weigh upon you so heavily that you, 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 you can't have enough breath to thank Him, and all you can really muster is, is a groan and a grumble, the voice of complaint. And yet when you read in the Scriptures, you cannot escape the unique quality of the character of God that He has in mind for His children, for you and for me. We read it in Psalm 100 that the child of God enters into God's gates with thanksgiving and comes into God's presence, into his, into his courts with praise. 
You don't have to read too far in the book of Philippians, in in Philippians chapter 4, to discover that there is a spirit that God intends to lay as a foundation in our life that is not only to support just the good parts of life, but the bad parts as well. We read in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writing, Philippians chapter 4, Paul writing, in everything by prayer and petition, it is with thanksgiving that we present our request to God. And when thanksgiving seasons everything, something very special happens. We continue to read in that passage, and it is on the basis of that, that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, several weeks ago, I I began a series of studies that were drawn from the desert wanderings of God's people found in the book of Exodus. You, You may remember that period of time, 40 years lost between that glorious drama Uh, and the beginning of of Exodus, and then the great campaign uh, through the Holy Land. And and, and those 40 years just can appear to be wasted time, just 40 years of nothing. Uh, I call it the in-betwixt and between moments of life. It's the territory that is, in fact, very familiar to all of us, and it has all the appeal of a waiting room, where, where life appears to be in suspended animation, and out-of-date magazines, just worthless moments. But as you remember, the fact is, it is in that period of desert time where God does tend to teach his greatest lessons to his children. The desert is his classroom. For what we learn there is our lessons, really, that go deep into the heart. So, so learn the lessons here. Let them go deep. And, and, and then you'll be prepared for anything else that life has to bring, whether it be grand or it be glorious. Deep lessons will matter most. And for this moment in time, really for Ebenezer, as you, as you stand in betwixt and between, God wants your undivided attention to teach you lessons that matter most. So turn back with me, if you will, to the book of Exodus as we look at chapter 17. And, and, and as you heard Pastor George read, uh, and, and I'll read along with it as well, the, the, the whole Israelite community set out from the wilderness of Zin. Now let's pause there for just a moment. That's where we were last, just last week, and in chapter 16, where they, they learned that God would care for their needs and do so in miraculous ways. You see that at the end of chapter 16, giving them sweet water in springs and then manna in the morning and quail meat in the evening. How long they were there, it doesn't really say. How long they were in the wilderness of Zin, doesn't really say. It does say that God cared for them for the 40 years and continued to meet their needs. But what we read in chapter 17, verse 1, that it was time to move on. So they set out and they traveled from place to place as the Lord commanded. We read that there. And they camped then at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. So what do they do? Verse 2, they quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. Give me a drink. Verse 4, the people were thirsty, so they grumbled against Moses. Can you, can you just picture this, the sound of this 
Grumble, grumble, grumble. Mutiny, mutiny, mutiny. Anger, anger, anger. Gripe, gripe, gripe. Now, there are all sorts of words that could be used in translation here <laughs> to describe what they were doing. Complain, moan, grouse, gripe, whine, groan, bellyache. You understand exactly what's going on. You, you, and, and you can't separate any of those words from emotion and attitude. The fact is, is that attitude can be common, can be contagious, and can make all the difference in your life. In his book, Strengthening Your Grip, Chuck Swindoll wrote this revealing paragraph. Listen carefully to what he says. The longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. Attitude is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. Attitude will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is that we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string that we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced, Swindoll goes on to say, that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. We really do have a choice about our attitude. Like the Israelites, we can be critical and complain about everything that happens to us, or we can look on the positive side with an attitude of faith that the God who parted the Red Seas might just be still at work in our world and might just still love us. Let's face the facts. We all are tempted to gripe. Nespa. Our biggest challenge is not knowing how to gripe. Our biggest challenge is knowing how to get a grip. Now, when I was looking at this passage, I had to make a choice on what angle to take on this particular uh, passage, which lens to look at. And, I, and since no, Moses is the central figure here, I decided to focus on him. He's in a very unique position here. And I'm sure that he's thirsty too. He's right with the people. He needs a drink as well. But here he's surrounded by a bunch of people who just add to, to the burden that he feels so intensely himself. So think of it. It's one thing to engage in a battle of attitude by yourself. It's another thing when you are surrounded by people who just add to that attitude, making their problem your problem just as well. And anyone who's ever been in leadership know exactly what that's like. And it's, it's no wonder then that the first cry we hear of Moses in verse 4 is, What am I to do with these people? (laughs) How relevant can that be? Have words like that ever crossed your lips? What am I to do with these people? What am I to do with this person? Maybe after being behind the wheel in a car, after a long day's drive on a family vacation, listening to your children incessantly saying, he's touching me, she's looking at me. 
She's touching me. He's on my side. How much longer, Daddy? And, and maybe it isn't then, it's in another time. It may come after a prolonged three-hour board meeting when you just couldn't seem to agree upon what brand of copier should be bought for the office. You can fill in your own blanks. The punchline comes out the same as what we read in Scripture. What am I to do with these people? Well, well, as I look at Moses, I see four relevant steps that, that serve as an enduring lesson on how to get a grip. The first is, realize that you are not alone. That the challenges you face are as much God's problem as are they yours. So include him in the equation. Look at what Moses says in verse 2. Why do you quarrel with me? And then he goes on to say this. And why do you put the Lord to the test? (laughs) You may remember the word test. I spoke about it last week in in, uh, chapter 16. With the idea that the word could easily be translated as proof, demanding proof. I went back and I did a little bit more study on that word this week, and I discovered that in the Hebrew, it also has a legal edge to it. To test could also be translated as to litigate. It's a term familiar to those of you who are lawyers here. Any lawyers here? There's got to be at least one Christian lawyer around. I, you know, that's, oh, okay. But, but it's, okay, you understand the term litigate means to take it to court, to sue, And for the rest of us who aren't lawyers, then take the word translated means to sue God. To demand proof that would stand up in the court of law. And so you put that together, what you have here is is that having benefited from all of God's goodness and grace, the children of Israel don't think twice about this. They're going to sue him. Why do you want to sue God? That's what Moses is asking them. Why do you want to take him to court? And I like the shift that takes place here in verse 2. Moses reveals that while the people may have had a quarrel with him, in fact, they were also putting God on trial. And as a result, he, Moses, was not alone in the venture. I have to believe that 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 perspective continues to provide comfort as well as confidence for anyone who stands in a position of leadership. That God is involved in the venture. And he takes whatever challenges there are in hand to himself. Years ago, I I heard of a young woman who explained the value of her relationship with Jesus Christ in facing the challenges of the world. She said this, Before I was a Christian, every time the devil came to my door, I'd open it and he'd enter and tear me apart. But now that I have Christ in my life, whenever the devil knocks on the door, I just turn to him and say, it's for you. (laughs) Lesson number one, you are not alone. The challenges you face concern God just as well. So, 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 So make it a matter of your partnership. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, the solution to your problem is better handled by him. So learn to trust him. It's more a matter of God's solution than it is yours. So trust him. 
I love, I love the way it reads here in verse 5. There, there's no debate and there's no dialogue. There's simply, what am I going to do? And in verse 4, God speaks. He says, walk on ahead, take your hand in your hand the staff. I will stand before you, strike the rock, and water will come out. Do you see how direct that is? I mean, it's like A, B, C, D, step one, two, three, four. Walk, take, stand, strike, water's going to come. Now, I want to make sure to underline something here. On one hand, Moses displays a level of obedience that I just admire to no end. He's got his command, and he does it. And there is something in me that just loves the simplicity of obedience. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And here Moses proves that he has learned to trust God and simply do what he has been told to do. And he even has a familiar tool in his hand to do it. It's the same staff that he carried into Egypt with him that he brought out of the desert when he was in his own desert preparation for the exodus. But there's still so much more in this picture. Moses may be obedient here, but, but so is God, is being faithful. Mark the first two words of verse 6. I will. That is God speaking. I will stand there before you, before the rock. I went back in Exodus to the first place where Moses was given an order by God. In, in Exodus chapter 6, when he was then told to go back to Egypt. And I get the feeling that, that sometimes the most of, that most of us think of orders and obedience as some huge weight that we're going to carry alone, but that's not true. That's not the way it happened in Exodus chapter 6, because Moses is given orders, and with the orders, God makes promises. Seven times in chapter 6 of Exodus, he tells Moses what he's going to do by saying, I will. Now, if you pick, have your finger in Exodus 17, go back to Exodus chapter 6. In verse 6, you'll see God making his promises. He says, I will bring you out of, from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham. I will give it back to you. You're not just being obedient to him. You're being obedient to his promises, and he's being faithful in return. You may find yourself walking around in life thinking to myself, what is God's will? What, what is God's will? His will primarily is to empower your obedience. So when you know what the right thing is to do, you do it. Because God is already there to make it happen. Lesson number one, you are not alone. Lesson number two, you can trust him with simple obedience. Lesson number three, what he calls you to do is part of his plan and is intended to serve his purposes. So, enjoy the ride. (laughs) Enjoy the ride. Now here I'm reading a few things into the action. Look at verse 6 back in Exodus chapter 17. Moses didn't march off on his own and hit a rock out of anger. (laughs) He just didn't go off and say, ah, 
I'm fed up with these people. Let me take my, my magic stick here and boom, hit a rock. He didn't do that. Uh, the water was for the people. So he gathered the elders around him and he made it a matter of service in their sight. And as they watched him, he touched the rock as God had ordered him and the water began to flow. And here is where, okay, as I study the scriptures, sometimes my imagination takes control. So here my imagination comes into play. I imagine that he got the biggest kick out of watching the reaction. He probably wasn't looking at the rock. He was probably looking at the elders going. And I I imagine that he took in the look on their faces. And while the Bible may not say it, I can very easily imagine that he began to laugh as the water flowed. Because you just have to love it when God does his thing. It's, it's, it's a marvel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul likens this rock to Jesus Christ when he says, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied him, and that rock was Christ. It wasn't just that water came out of that rock, it was grace, grace, marvelous grace. Can't you enjoy that? Man, that's fun. And I have to believe that only grace can cure the foulest attitude among us. Only grace can silence grumbling. Seeing God at work, even in the simplest way, is enough. You are are not alone. You can trust Him and you can enjoy Him. And those are the lessons that need to be burned into our memories. And then one last lesson. In verse 7, this spot in the desert got a new name. It started off being Riphidim, and now it ends up with two new names, Masa and Meribah, which, as you have in your notes, simply mean testing and quarreling. <laughs> Naming these springs set this up to become an enduring lesson. Because it's not just a matter of calling this place testing and quarreling, you're also naming this place the the place where God passed the test and silenced the quarreling. And Moses ties it together with the question of, is the Lord among us or not? (laughs) Now, can you imagine this? Every time that question would be asked, is the Lord among us or not, the answer could come out in two words, Massa and Meribah. He passes the test. He passed the test. He silences the quarreling. He silenced the quarreling. Massa and Marabah, where the answers were settled. And so when the question comes, is he among us or not? The answer is simple. Yes, he is. He's among us. Yep. And every time they would be tempted to file a lawsuit against God, pick a quarrel with him, test him, make him prove himself, the question pop up, is the Lord among us or not? The answer was definitive. There is something about an enduring reminder that that sinks deep. Some time ago, I have a very dear friend uh, who was released from a year of rehab, and and in talking with his counselor, I was told that that I only had only one thing to do to care for him, and that was to never let him forget what what he's, he's been and where he's been. 
And to be honest, I was in shock when I heard that. I, I thought that the goal of, uh, would be to forget the pain of the past and to erase the memory of failure and to somehow not only find forgiveness, but also forgetfulness along the way. But instead, I discovered, and my friend has insisted over the years, that this enduring reminder is the most important lesson he has ever learned because it becomes a cause for constant rejoicing and giving thanks. Which I guess brings up that final lesson. I suppose it's it's the easiest thing to complain when you're in the desert and And I know it's not hard to gripe when you're thirsty and hot and tired. And I suppose it would be impossible for the children of Israel to fixate on the bad things and begin to wonder, is the Lord among us or not? And then then forget that he was ever present in the cloud and the fire and was even carrying with them in the morning with manna and the evening with quail. We do it all the time when we forget to be thankful and remember that God is with us. As Paul writes, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, to be thankful in everything, and might I add, for everything. Dr. Olson, the president of Loma Linda University, told an imaginative story of a man who found the barn where where Satan kept his seeds to be sown in the human heart. As the man walked through the barn, he read the label on the bags of seeds, and he was surprised to see that the vast majority were labeled the seeds of discouragement. He turned to Satan and he asked, why are there so many of these seeds? And Satan answered, they are my most effective seeds because they grow almost anywhere. (laughs) Almost anywhere, the man asked. Is there any place where they don't grow? And after a pause, Satan admitted, he said, well, there is one place where they can't take root. Where's that, the man asked. And Satan sighed. They just can't grow in the heart of a thankful human being. (laughs) And that's God's will for you. And that's the lesson of his grace. And that's the enduring reminder we take from the word of God. I mentioned it a bit earlier, but let me repeat the words. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and will guard your minds in the wonderful grace of Christ Jesus. So as we come to the end of this service, let's just warm up our hearts with a prayer of thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for my life. I thank you for our lives and everything that you bestowed upon us and upon all people this day and every day. We can't watch a child, children's dedication and the birth of a child and, and the welcoming of a baby without, without realizing that, that your gifts are great. But even more, we thank you for the good as, as well as the bad and and we, under, and, and we thank you for the understanding of forgiveness and, and your holy power, for without it, we would have nothing. I thank you for this day and for all your blessings and your gifts and your never-ending love for us. And although we are, we are all sinners, I, I ask you to forgive us every day for what we, we might have done wrong and, and, and might not have noticed. And even though we all come short of the glory, God, I thank you for the sacrifice of your only Son, Jesus Christ, for all of our sins. 
and for being patient with us, Lord, in our grumbling. You and only you know us, Heavenly Father, and you know if our hearts are true. So once again, we come to you and we thank you with all of our heart, soul, body, and mind. And we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray, amen.